so we're still in this wonderful passage, the Upper Room Discourse in John. If I could ask you all to turn your Bibles to John 15. Today we're going to continue unpacking the metaphor of the vine and the branches and the call to abide in Christ and the promise of bearing fruit through Christ. And today we'll actually be concluding this metaphor. We're still in the upper room. Remember, it's five chapters. Remember, you're, you're supposed to be dedicating portions of your quiet time to looking at John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, soaking it up. You're supposed to be praying Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, that you might see this great love that Jesus gives us through the word of God. Those are your assignments this summer. Um, and uh, I'm kind of kidding. Like, I don't mean that in some creepy, controlling way. But, but come on, get in there. And, and, and we're going to conclude this metaphor today. It's going to reach a climactic point in a specific command of Jesus Christ. And it's this command to love one another. So what I want to do is just to intro us, to, to reorient us. I want to sort of like a Google map zooms way out and you click it and zooms way in. I want to start out, you know, back at the beginning here of the metaphor and come back inside to it. So remember the scene, the whole context. It's the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He is preparing his disciples for this next shattering, epically disastrous for, from their experience, 48 hours before the resurrection, and the lifetime of ministry that they're being called to ahead without him. And, and as, as, as we, we zoom in a little bit more, Jesus brings out this metaphor of the vine and the branches. He has just talked about the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he moves into this metaphor. And, and to recap that metaphor, essentially Jesus says, I am the vine, my father is the gardener, and you are the branches and my father, he prunes, he cleans you branches, and, and he does that so you would bear more fruit. But my father cuts off and, and, he, and, and burns those branches that bear no fruit. And, and, and then he says to them, but listen, you are pruned, you are clean already by the word I have spoken to you. You believed the message I brought to you, the gospel, the good news about who I am. And in believing it, you were, you were already pruned, you were cleaned, and you were put into the vine. You were saved, to put it in our vernacular. And then in verse 4 through 5, he says, Now abide in me, remain in me, don't leave me, don't be cut off. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we have this picture of this organic life, a vine with all these branches. We have this promise that fruit bearing occurs as we stay connected to the vine, as we abide and remain in Jesus Christ. His life comes through our branches bearing his fruit. And we ascertained previously that this fruit is nothing less than the, the life, the character, the heart of Jesus Christ coming out in our lives. And I believe that happens through the Holy Spirit inside us. That he's just given word that will be given to us. Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from me living in you and through you. But God does produce spiritual fruit out of our lives as we abide and remain in Jesus. So we want to know how do we abide? How do we remain in Jesus? Abide essentially means remain. They're the same Greek word. And we saw in verse 2 that we're cleaned first by his word. We believe the gospel. We come into the vine. And we're called now to remain and abide. Now certainly this remaining, this abiding at a fundamental level means 
This is how you came in. So keep trusting. You came in through trusting me and my word. So keep trusting me. Keep believing my word. That's the great theme of John's gospel. Believe. Have life through believing. And so at a fundamental level, abiding is to keep believing. Moment by moment. Hour by hour. Day by day. Week by week. Month by week. Month by month. Year by year. That Jesus is who he said Staying close to his word, trusting him to be your life, trusting him to be your source, even as you follow him as Lord, depending on him as your strength. But as we zoom in closer, starting in verse 7, we begin to see more concretely what this metaphor involves. Jesus moves from metaphorical language more and more to concrete language. Verse 7, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my very words... Remain in you. Ask God for whatever you wish, and God will act on your behalf. And why is that? Because we are, we are praying according to the very words of Jesus. The very character, the very will of God is rooted and hidden in our hearts. We're praying in that way. God is not going to fail to answer us. So we see this incredible, this incredible value placed on knowing God's word and keeping his word in our hearts if we want to abide. And then verse 8 connects all this fruit bearing to showing that we're really his disciples. That that proof would come out of our lives in fruit. And then verse 9 through 11, as Andrew spoke on last week, Jesus says that he loves us astoundingly with the very same love that his father loves him with. And then he calls us to abide, to remain in that love. And he tells us that we do this, we experience and enjoy that love by keeping his commandments. And that doing so in turn leads to joy filling us and overflowing in our lives. And now for today, our final zoom in. After Jesus saying, keep my words in you, pray to my father. Stay in my love by keeping my commandments and be filled with my joy. We come to this final section today, verses 12 through 17, of this glorious, amazing, precious vine and branches metaphor. And here today, Jesus will focus in on one specific, glorious, and apart from him, absolutely impossible commandment. And let's read. Verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. 
so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Lord, help. Three features of our text this morning. Love commanded, love rewarded, love exalted. Love commanded first, verses 12 to 13. Love commanded. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, this is my commandment the first phrase in our text this morning. He is calling us to obey him. The world chafes at obedience. Some of that's due to the way those with power lord it over others and have done so ever since mankind was first created in the garden. But much is due to this innate desire in us to rebel against authority. Because we don't want to have authority over us, including God's authority. That rebellion is part of the spirit of our age, and it is something that we war with all the time. But the words command, the words obedience, they, when they come from a holy God, when they come from a loving Lord, they are not dirty words. They are life. The Christian is fundamentally a person under grace, but also a person under command. The Christian is fundamentally a person under authority. Brother and sister, if you claim to be a Christian, you follow a Lord in addition to a Savior. The relationship that you were saved for, that you were redeemed for, was not an eternal relationship with a, an equal or, or a nice grandpa, but a relationship with a God. And when he became your savior, he did that so he could be your God, your Lord, your king, your loving, benevolent ruler. And so this word for us today, what's going to come forth in this passage today, love one another. It's not negotiable. It's not an option for us to pursue this. Not if we want to experience Christ. Not if we want to remain in him. And it is the most specific command of this entire vine metaphor, I believe. This metaphor which defines our relationship to Jesus and to the Father. Climaxes in this commandment. Love one another. Jesus says, do you want to prove to be my disciples? Do you want to remain and abide in my love? Do you want to experience the fullness of joy? Do you want to be satisfied by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Jesus is saying this morning, I want that for you. I died to give that to you. Then for my sake and for your joy in obedience to me, trusting and depending on my power without which you can do nothing, pursue a life of love. 
for one another. And what is the love that we are to have for each other? What's the quality? As I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Oh, Lord, I even as I preach these words, I pray again that your Holy Spirit would burn them deeply into my heart. That this fruit would issue from my life more and more. This love is a love that is for others and gives to others. It is for the other and it gives to the other. It is a love after the pattern of Jesus on the cross. The laying down of one's life out of love. It is the heart of God. C.S. Lewis writes graphically and starkly of the radical source and the radical nature of this love. He says, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe. Listen, he creates the universe already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies above the cross. Already seeing the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites causes us to be that way, that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. As Lewis paints this graphic picture of the cross, he gets to the heart of what love means. Now listen, none of us will die for anyone's sins, but Jesus is looking for the heart of love. In his children, behind his sacrifice of love. It's a love that will always be patient. It will always be kind. Even in courage, it will always be humble. Because of its impossibility for us, it's a love that will always be dependent on him. It's also a love that will look different according to the need. Much of the time, this love will call you to give of your wealth or your time or your friendship or your talents. But in rare cases, this love will call you to hold something back from someone you want to give to because it might hurt the receiver. It's not an enabling love. It's a sacrificial love. Enabling in the the wrong sense. Sacrificial love will often call you to be comforting. Most of the time, it will call you to be encouraging. It will call you to seek the healing of someone that you may have hurt by asking their forgiveness. But at other times, sacrificial love will have you sacrifice your selfish fear by confrontation, by rebuking, by gently correcting and calling someone back to Jesus. All in the spirit of gentleness. And this sacrificial love will be propped up By the realization that you are commanded by your Lord to offer it. It's not negotiable. 
and his pleasure and his glory is at issue in it. And this love will be propped up by the truth that it is empowered and fed and nourished by the spirit of God in you through your trust in that spirit by faith. See, it is a supernatural love and it is a supernatural thing to love like this. And so the command takes us back to the beginning of this metaphor. The branch can bear no fruit unless it abides and remains in the vine. The life, the power in the vine, not in the branches. Apart from me, you cannot love like this. It is a love that could only come from God's riches. And again, C.S. Lewis, we'll come back to him here again. He, he calls this love divine gift love. It's the gift of God's divine love imparted to us. And he contrasts it with what he calls the natural love, the natural gift love we have. Divine gift love, he says, love himself working in a man is wholly disinterested in self and desires what is simply best for the beloved. Again, natural gift love, our natural love, is always directed to objects which the lover finds in some way intrinsically lovable. Objects to which affection, or eros, which is his word for romantic love, or some shared point of view attracts him. Or failing that, to the grateful and deserving Or perhaps to those whose helplessness is is of a winning and appealing kind. But divine gift love in the man enables him to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, the sulky, the superior... And the sneering. Divine love enables you to love the unlovable. Church, do you believe God calls you to this? See, I believe this is what the Holy Spirit gets excited about. This is what the Holy Spirit gives himself to us to do so that he might be glorified as we see the miracle of being and doing what we could never be and do on our own power. If we believe this is God's command, if we give ourselves to this, God is going to fill it with power and ability. We must believe. If we want to see his power in this way, we can't be waiting always to obey until the person Or the situation suits our fancy. We can't wait for that. Until we feel that loving is comfortable for us. Now I'm not talking about putting ourselves in abusive or dangerous situations. Where we're we're threatened with violence. or, Or there's some huge pattern of terrible, destructive abuse. We work through that. We talk. We protect weak and vulnerable people. Or people in weak situ- weakened situations. But even in those situations, we have to live out our wisdom in a loving way. But still the goal of love. We can't wait until we're comfortable to obey this command. 
We, we, we hear the command of our Lord. And we, we therefore, we, we lift up the sails of obedience on our little boat. And the Holy Spirit blows into those sails and sends this little boat of our weak vessel towards God's path. J.D. Greer says the Holy Spirit doesn't move parked cars. We, we step into obedience and God fills that with his power. I think the Holy Spirit sometimes does move parked cars. But. Now let's briefly consider what it means to our Lord that we would give him love this way through his power. Because it is not a small thing to him. Verse 2, love rewarded, or I'm sorry, section 2, love rewarded, verses 14 through 15. Listen to what Jesus says here. Listen to this, this opportunity. Listen to his tenderness, his affection, his longing. You are my friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. When I say the reward of love, I don't mean it in the sense of earning our salvation, but I do mean it in this sense. Well done, good and faithful servant. I do mean it in this sense. Psalm 25. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He deepens his friendship with those who revere him. There is a joy in pleasing the Lord and a fellowship with his Holy Spirit that comes through following him through hard, difficult commands. And it deepens our friendship with Jesus in ways we could not imagine. And I know some of you know this so much better than I do. Jesus has already offered a heart of friendship to us in the intimacy of letting us know all that's on his Father's heart. The Bible, the the revelation of Jesus Christ is a revelation of who God is to us. He is not holding back. And now he says, now you live as my friends by obeying me in this command to love. I believe God wants us to be fueled. This is what I I hope and and believe that this, this friendship offer from Jesus Christ should do to us. I believe he wants us to be fueled and filled with anticipation and joy at the prospect that our loving one another at his command in some way it sustains in his heart a sense of our friendship to him. Is that not mind-blowing? That 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 God would call you friend. And say, when you obey my command to live sacrificially for others, you are my friend. Verse 
You are living as my friend. That through the gospel, we have the opportunity to be God's friend. The final section, love exalted, verses 16 through 17. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Love is the great goal. Peter says, the goal of our instruction is love. Paul says, without love, I am nothing. Galatians says, the only thing that counts is faith working itself out through love. We are a chosen people. But we are chosen for a particular kind of life. A life of love. This life, a life dedicated to sacrificial love, a love that is the very image of the God who is love. It is the life that engenders God's help. The pursuit of sacrificial loving engenders God's help. It engenders his power in that we bear his fruit from his life as we love. That's what Jesus, I believe, is telling us in these verses. I chose you that you should bear fruit and your fruit should abide. Where does that fruit come from? It comes from God's power. And as we truly love others and fight to love others for his sake, his power is flowing through us. It engenders his help. He is at our service. If you ask me for anything in this pursuit, I will give it to you. He is at our service. When we set out to love sacrificially, he will answer those prayers to fight that fight. A life of sacrificial love is the goal. It is the image of God who is love. It is the climax of this metaphor and it is the purpose for which we were born. To image God through lives of agape love, sacrificial love. Christian, do you know that's the goal of your life as a Christian towards one another? Do you know that? After the fight for faith in Jesus Christ, it is the greatest fight. And it is connected to it. And sustained by that fight for faith. Listen, we're all going to fight in this life. We're all going to battle in this life. Life is war. From the moment you wake up to the time you put your head on the pillow, it is war. But it is so crucial to know the right fight to fight. I, I deal with my heart and I counsel people who we're all struggling to know the right fight. We're fighting. There is no question that we're in a battle. We're in the game. But we're so often fighting the wrong fight. The following is compiled from Wikipedia, from writer Tom Furta, and profootballhof.com. Copyright infringement defended. Vikings... Minnesota Vikings defensive tackle Jim Marshall 
owned the line of scrimmage throughout his career, recording 127 sacks and an NFL record 29 fumble recoveries. But one fumble in one game would outclass them all. That game occurred on October 25th, 1964, against the NFC rival San Francisco 49ers. Marshall was a member of Minnesota's famous Purple People Eaters defense. And he scooped up this fumble and he ran it 66 yards, the majority of the football field, into the end zone. And as he galloped down the sideways, his teammates were jumping up and down. And after making his way into the end zone and out of breath, the exhausted player heaved the ball out of bounds in celebration. And then soon realized he would forever make it onto every NFL blooper reel in existence. Marshall had just run in the wrong direction. And instead of scoring a TD and putting six points on the board for the Vikings, he had just handed the 49ers a two-point safety. After the game, he said, my first inkling that something was wrong was when a 49er player gave me a hug in the end zone. I struggle too often, and most of us struggle too often, to run the ball into the right end zone. We are running with the ball, but we are running, fighting the wrong way. We're in a conflict. We've been sinned against. We've been wronged. And we're struggling. And it's, it's all a struggle to get our own way over that person who's hurt us. To get justice. To get them out of our hair. To get people to understand. This spouse. This husband. This wife. This child. Oh, we're fighting. But we're fighting the wrong battle. We're running towards the wrong end zone. We're not fighting against our hearts to ask for love for this person who seems so unlovable. This is my command. Win the argument. This is my command. Crush him. Beat them down. Win this one. Finally get your way. Oh no. I'm not there. It's not what I'm about. You want my power? You want my fruit? You want my answered prayer? Do the tough thing. You love that person. You fight against your heart to love that person. And then I will be there with you. I will fight in you. I will fight for you. We just pant with all our hearts to get out of the situation, to get away from the people. 
Sometimes there's wisdom in that. Can't preach every message every Sunday. But we need to stop. We need to fight to ask God the hard question. Lord, how would you have me love these people in it? You don't want me to be a fool, but you do not want me to be selfish. Jesus says here, if you're not fighting for love, you're running to the wrong answer. Fight against your selfishness and for love. A few final points. Love starts at home. It doesn't stay there, but it starts there. I think it was Jeff Perswell who told me in pastor's college. I think it was him. Never forget these words until I can't forget but everything. He says, you are who you are at home. You are who you are at home. Can it be so much easier to feel love for folks we don't have to live with every day? Oh, I told Fred and Jackie the other night, I'm still waiting for the day where I can bring comfort and mercy and care right away to my wife when she sins against me. See, it's much easier to bring her comfort and grace when she's struggling with other people, sinning against it. But turn that sin cannon towards me. That is not what comes back from my heart. God's going to do a miracle in me. Thank you. If we can love those whose sins we know the best and whose sins have hurt us the most, we are on the road to loving powerfully. Husbands, I double dog dare you. So I've got these two deep challenges, you know. Stay in the upper room. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. Here's another challenge. Husbands for you, ask your wives this week. What is one way I can love you more sacrificially? What is one way I can love you? What is one way I can love you by laying my life down for you more than I am right now? And wives, don't let this be a response. <laughs> oh! How many hours do you have? Respect your husbands. Do not trash them. Another point, love is for the lost. Love is for the lost. It seems, listen, the lost aren't specifically cited here, but, but it's, it's clear to me that when Jesus says one, love one another, he is talking to disciples here. Though he's talking to disciples here about disciples, the entire context of this metaphor is the mission to the world that the disciples are about to engage. Sacrificial love was commanded for one another with a view to the sacrificial life that was to be given over to the Great Commission. Sacrificial love for one another was to be commanded with a view to the sacrificial life given over to the Great Commission for the lost. Loving each other was going to be necessary for these disciples because they were going to be tempted to leave Jesus and they needed the exhortation of one another. They were going to be tempted to desert each other and they needed forgiveness from one another. They would be called to suffer terribly for Jesus and they would need the comfort of one another. 
And because they would be witnesses of who Jesus is to the whole world and to all the baby churches they were about to find, found. I remember being in, in Turkey two years ago for the Central Asian Missionary Conference run by the Southern Baptists. And, and the common mission to the lost in these Central Asian countries that were predominantly Muslim was so obviously driving these 300 people into each other. Their outward mission was driving them into one another. It fed their relationships with each other. And in turn, it strengthened them for their mission, relationship and mission to the lost. It was a Southern Baptist Convention mission group. But the stories that I heard of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit among them and the fervency of their love and zeal would have made you thought it was the Jesus movement of the 1970s. I I think we have much more to talk about concerning mission. I believe we have work to do. But even now, I believe that as we pastors and as care group leaders and as you members, according to your various gifts, as you push deeper into outward mission, it will bring inward healing into our church and our relationships with each other. See, listen, it is contrary to the character of the Holy Spirit that he would withhold his power for us to love sacrificially. That he would withhold that from a community given to preach to the lost that Jesus died to save from hell. It doesn't make sense as we give ourselves to the lost who Jesus died to save from hell. He is not going to take and deplete our love for one another. He's going to strengthen it, empower it, so that when they do get saved, they have somewhere to come and be and be loved and witness who he is in front of their eyes. The inward and the outward mission go hand in hand. They feed each other. They help each other. So keep praying for that. And, 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 and what can you do? What can you or your care group do to push even one firm step deeper towards the lost? Is Kyle Bohannon here? We always pick on Kyle. Go ask Kyle. He leads a care group that has a very significant mission bent. They love each other. That's what I hear anyway. I'm not in the group. Finally, a life of sacrificial love is the life of Jesus It is who he is. It is what he did for us on the cross. It is how he sustains us in himself throughout our lives. It is what he produces in our lives as we seek to keep his word and obey him and and call out to him for it. And so listen, 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 listen. This is the last thing. You're all going home. Stay rooted in Jesus' love for you as his word proclaims it. His love fuels your love. His love rescues and cleans your weary and wandering heart. As we keep his love for us clear in our souls, we will have power to keep loving others for his sake. And in that vein, I end with this rather long but completely worth it quote from Charles Spurgeon about the heart of love in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus loves his people so much that every day he is still doing for them much that is analogous to washing their soiled feet. Their poorest actions he accepts. Their deepest sorrow he feels. 
Their slenderest wish he hears. And their every transgression he forgives. He is still their servant. As well as their friend. And master. He not only performs majestic deeds for them. Standing up to plead for them. But humbly, patiently, he goes about among his people with the basin and with the towel. He does this when he puts away from us day by day our constant infirmities and sins. Last night when you bowed the knee, you mournfully confessed that much of your conduct was not worthy of your profession. And even tonight you must mourn afresh that you have fallen again into the self-same folly and sin from which special grace delivered you long ago. And yet Jesus will have great patience with you. He will hear your confession of sin and he will say, I will be thou clean. He will again apply the blood of sprinkling and speak peace to your conscience and remove every spot. It is a great act of eternal love when Christ once for once for all absolves the sinner. That is, it is a great act when he first saves us and puts him into the family of God. But what condescending patience there is when the Savior, with much long-suffering, bears the often recurring follies of his wayward disciple day by day and hour by hour, washing away the multiplied transgressions of his erring yet beloved child. To dry up a flood of rebellion is something marvelous. That's when we're first saved, the flood of rebellion. But to endure the constant dropping of repeated offenses, to bear with perpetual trying of patience, this is divine indeed. While we find comfort and peace in our Lord's daily cleansing, it is, its legitimate influence upon us will be to increase our watchfulness and quicken our desire for holiness. Is it so? Jesus says to you this morning, this is my commandment, brothers and sisters, as I have loved you, love one another. If we give ourselves to this, he will give ourselves to us for it. I'm believing that again. Are you believing that again? Can I ask the band to come up? If you want to stand and sing, stand and sing. But if there is something in your heart and in your life that is keeping you from loving and giving yourself to this kind of love, from from saying to God, yes, Lord, I will do this, trusting in your power. If there is an enemy that so embittered you, if there is a fear and a hurt from the past that so imprisoned you, I want you to go to war with that right now. I want you to pick up the ball and run towards the right end zone. So if that's you, or if that's someone you know that's locked in bitterness, that's locked in a refusal to love, please, I encourage you just to continue to pray and pray for them. Pray for yourself as we hear this last song. Thank you so much.